Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Last week I began Paul's letter to the Philippians and I share with you most scholars call this the epistle of joy. And it's quite evident as you start to read it. Paul talks about his joy praying for the Philippians over and over again. He uses the word. But in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says that we should rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say sometimes. He doesn't say when you got the bonus at work or when the Phillies win or when it's nice outside. He said you should rejoice in the Lord always. And then he adds on to it, and again I say rejoice. Now, if you were reading this letter and you didn't know much about the Bible, you would think, wow, the guy writing this letter is so filled with joy, he's so happy, he must have plateaued on some happiness high. And actually, you know, Paul is in maybe the worst circumstances you can think of. Here's a guy who's planted churches all around the world, and he's in a prison cell in Rome, and he's chained to a Praetorian guard. Nero's the emperor. Paul knows he's never getting out of that prison. And yet he writes in chapter 1, verse 12, he said to the Philippians, look, don't worry about me. I know you've heard I'm in prison, but it's actually worked out for my benefit because the entire palace guard is hearing the gospel. And only God could arrange that, right? Only God could take these brutish, pagan, you know, guys that probably look like Arnold Schwarzenegger who knew nothing about spirituality and chain them to the greatest evangelist, the man who wrote the book of Romans 24-7. And it's interesting, this is my opinion, We'll never know what the seeds of that were, by the way. Now, I believe personally that Daniel, when he was in Babylon, you know, he was the chief of the Chaldeans, the, the magicians, the inner court of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's, there, there's conjecture, but there's, there's strong argument that uh, the Magi from the east were influenced by Daniel. That's why they visited Jesus when they saw the star in the east. So we'll never know the seeds that were planted in Rome in this prison by Paul. Now, I look at Paul and say, Paul, I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't. You know, I couldn't be in a prison cell saying, okay, God's doing great ministry here. I want to be out doing ministry. I don't want to do it in a prison. I'll be honest. So I look at this guy and I think, is he otherworldly? Is he an alien? Does he drink different water than we drink? And then he gives you, really, the secret to his life when he says, for me to live is Christ, verse 21, to die is gain. And I kind of walked you through that diagnostic. I think it's healthy for all of us. I think every single day, every week, to look at our actions, our decisions, our purchases, our checkbooks, everything we do. And can we really say to live as Christ, even as a Christian? Even as a Christian, we know we accepted Christ, but are we really living for Christ? Or has a usurper taken that place? Has something else come to the throne? And, and I think it goes up and down. I think we have to be careful about it. Hebrews talks about us drifting. And so when I look at my life, you know, there are times when something else is what I'm living for. And every time it happens, my joy goes south. I get irritable, I'm unhappy, I start to look at life, it doesn't make any sense. When I'm living for Christ, when he is first place in my life, joy always seems to increase, even despite circumstances. So, you know, the idea is we want to live for Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand that. Living for Christ is not getting on your knees praying 15 hours a day. It could be if that's what God called you to. Living for Christ isn't quitting your job, going to full-time ministry, going to some foreign country to be a missionary. You know, maybe you've heard things like that. Um, to live for Christ means that he's just always before your, your, your mind, the idea. You know, God created Adam and he put him in a garden. 
And Adam tilled the garden all day, and then at the time of the evening breezes, he walked with God. But I'm sure God was always on Adam's mind. You know, one of the things I think God gives God pleasure is what we do for a living, our vocation. The Bible has a lot to say about the work you and I do. Uh, work is a good thing. God was a gardener. Adam tilled the ground. Six days, Moses said, we will work. And the seventh is a day of rest. Proverbs has a lot to say about work, how good it is for us. It, it's a release of creativity. It's a, se- a sense of self-accomplishment. Provides for our families. Uh, I had the privilege of hearing Horst Schultze at a conference last year. He's the former CEO of Ritz-Carlton, one of the high-end uh, hotel chains in all the world. And Horst Schultze said that if, uh, if you've ever worked in the hospitality industry, and my family owned a restaurant, he said you would know that whenever you hire a dishwasher, he said if the guy or the girl can walk from here to there 10 feet without falling over, they're hired, okay? And he said, but we don't do that at Ritz-Carlton. In fact, we don't hire, we select. And he said, we'll go through 15 interviews before we select a dishwasher. And he's the guy who coined this phrase that in the hospitality industry at Ritz-Carlton, they are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Now, you know why Horst Schulze has street cred? Because he grew up in Germany, dirt poor. He and his family would forage in the forest for food. At a young age, he got a job in a hotel, and he was inspired by a maitre d'. Do you know why? He said, because that maitre d' didn't come to work. Listen, he showed up to be excellent at his craft. And Hort Schulze was inspired by that and becomes the CEO of Ritz-Carlton. Can you imagine if Christians had that work ethic? Can you imagine if Christians took the right view of work, that they're working for God, they're not giving lip service or eye service, but that God is their boss? See, that's where I think God gets joy. God wants us to enjoy our hobbies. Jonathan Edwards, who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, used to love horseback riding with his wife. God wants us to enjoy leisure. Six days we work, and then God gave us a lazy day to do whatever we want, to to enjoy life and the variety that he's given us. So really, it's the pursuit of God, not circumstances, that gives us our joy. And I think we laid that foundation, right? doesn't matter if I live in Malibu or Pittsburgh, I can have joy in God. Now, maybe not Pittsburgh, but almost everywhere else, okay? <laughs> and I could say that because I have friends from Pittsburgh, none of them who live there anymore, by the way. But, uh, but you get the idea, right? Circumstances will not change your outlook. I tell single guys who are angry, marriage isn't your solution. Because if you're a single angry guy and you get married, you will be a married angry guy, right? It's not the church you go to. It's not your job. It's not any circumstance. The Bible says out of the wells of salvation come this joy that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I know when Christ is at the center, my joy increases. Now that's our foundation. And I was so looking forward to chapter 2 because it has one of the great verses of the incarnation, which sadly we only ever talk about at Christmas, how God became man. It's one of the great doctrines of the church. It's unique to Christianity. And I was so excited to get there because Paul ties it into our conduct and life at church. But somehow God wouldn't release me because of four nagging verses at the end of chapter 1. So I want you to read them with me. Chapter 1, verse 27, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. 
That's the version Paul used. Some of you don't believe me. Verse 27, he said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And this is what he wanted to hear. That you are of one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your enemies or your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For you, for you know that it has been granted on your behalf uh, to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Having the same confidence which you saw in me and now in here in me. Paul said, we have been called as Christians not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Uh Uh-oh. I never heard that at the altar. I never heard that at the altar call. I heard God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I heard God's going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. What are you talking about? No one ever talked about suffering. Why wasn't anyone up front with me on this? And this is why I thought God didn't want me to release me from this, because some of you come from church backgrounds where you were taught many things. Some of you were taught that if you were suffering, you lacked faith, or God was mad at you, or somehow you were reaping what you were sowing. Right here in black and white, I don't know how you get around it, the Bible says unequivocally, if you are a Christian, you will suffer. We will go through the sufferings of life. If you go on YouTube... And it's, YouTube's wonderful now. Things I used to have to dig for all week are all right there. And you'll see one after one, these atheist versus believer debates, and they go on and on and on. And you know what's at the top of every argument? Human suffering. I mean, at the top of every debate is, you know, why are there these things in our world, these terrible misfortunes and calamities and injustice? And you look back at history, and it's filled with ghettos and gulags and gas chambers and racism, and now we have terrorism, and then skeptics come along and say, if there is a God, he would have alleviated all of this. Now, I've talked immensely about suffering. I'm not going to give an apologetic for it today, but the Bible does tell us in Peter that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that's in us, right? You should be able to defend the idea why suffering exists on our planet. Let me give you a couple of book recommendations. To me, Dinesh D'Souza, why we stock so many of his books He writes to the skeptic. One of the problems is the people that you're ministering to, if they're skeptics, uh, if you say, well, the Bible says this, they may not believe the Bible. So Dinesh writes in such a way where he's building an argument outside the Bible, then he brings the Bible in. Obviously, Tim Keller's written one of the best books on suffering. He's a pastor. John MacArthur, if if you know anyone's ever lost a child, has written a book, Safe in the Arms of God. And then if you want to save your money, just read the book of Job in the Old Testament. And you'll understand suffering or you'll understand why maybe we'll never understand why we suffer. But I want to focus on believers this morning. I want to focus on this word that if we have faith in Christ, we will suffer. Because I think so much of the time we're trying to get away from it. We're trying to think, okay, suffering's my enemy. Let me get away from suffering. So I want to share with you three things about suffering. And the first one's the most important. And again, we come from all different backgrounds. Number one, God gets absolutely no pleasure out of your suffering. Whoever told you that God wants you to suffer because somehow it gives you pleasure, 
I think is a non-biblical idea. Not only is it non-biblical, it's closer to a pagan idea than anything Christian. In fact, the word blessed that I talked about last week, which is the Greek word markouros, which means to be happy, is actually a Greek word borrowed from the condition of the gods who live the blessed life. Now here's the difference. The gods live the blessed life, but they never blessed human beings. Human beings were the lackeys of the gods. The Bible unequivocally tells us that God gets no pleasure out of our suffering. You might say, Pastor Bob, how can you prove it? And here's how I would prove it. Listen, God suffered. God suffered. See, that's what's unique to what you and I believe. God suffered. When God looked at what man had done and brought sin into the world, when the world went through a fall, do you know what God did? God said, one day I'll step in and I'll become part of the creation. That's why when we, next week when we get to the set of verses, is it's mind-blowing. Where Paul says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness he put on human flesh. We'll never understand that for all time. How God could become one of us. But here's what we do understand. Hebrew says, because he did, he makes a great high priest. Every time you suffer, he knows exactly what you're going through. He suffered just like we suffered. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1, he's the express image of God. So how does God look at suffering? Just look at Jesus. And if you look at Jesus afresh in his ministry, do you know what he did most of the time? He alleviated suffering and pain. He would go in the villages and heal everyone. He would cleanse lepers, Gentiles, Jews, raise the dead. There's 24 accounts of specific healings in the gospel outside of Jesus healing everyone. When people were hungry, he fed them. When parents had sick children, he healed them. Jesus, in many ways, as best as he could, reversed the curse that came on this earth. And in the times, and I'm not going to say when he couldn't, in the times when he wouldn't, do you know what he did? He wept. He wept. God wept. When he looked at Jerusalem, he said, my plan was to gather you as a chick, uh, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted to cover you. But you missed the day of your visitation. There's coming a day where the Romans are going to come and destroy the city. When he didn't get to Lazarus in time to heal him, he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Wept that we would ever experience pain, suffering, and loss. And so what's God's view of pain, suffering? He wants to reverse it. Well, can we explain why some of it goes on? Absolutely not. That was what Job learned. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this is a pastor who lost his son in a car accident. And that night, people from the congregation came one by one. They brought him quiches and desserts. And they said, Pastor, I'm so sorry to hear about your son, but it was the Lord's will. And he said, by the time the 30th person came and gave me that quiche and said it was the Lord's will, he said, I slammed that quiche down on the ground and I said, was it the Lord's will that my son had too much to drink that night? Was it the Lord's will that my son never changed his windshield wipers? Was it the Lord's will that the guardrail was bent where he had his accident? pastor looked everyone in the eye and said, no, I want to tell you this, that when my son Carr went into that lake and he drowned, 
God was the first to shed a tear. Now, we can't build theology around a story, but please understand what this pastor knew. God gets no pleasure out of suffering. And you might say, well, then why, God, why didn't God stop that kid from drowning? And sometimes God does. You know, the Bible says we all have angels. We're all assigned these guardian angels. How much they're, you know, helping us stay on plan and avoid the dumb things we do, I, I don't know, but I know they do. I look back at my life and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, as a young kid, eight, nine years old, we got on railroad cars and we did crazy stuff and somehow I'm still here. But God gets no pleasure out of our pain. And again, we don't know why we go through these things. Paul said, look, here's the one thing I know. The palace guard is hearing the gospel. Now, that's akin to someone you know dying, and you say, well, three people got saved at their funeral. You know what we're doing there? What we're doing is saying, I don't know what God's doing, and I may never know. But Romans 8, 26 says, all things God's working for good. And I'm going to leave it there. Certainly, we take our loved one back, and those people can get saved another way, right? So when Paul's saying the whole palace guard is hearing the gospel, he's not saying that's his choice. He's saying, to the best of my ability, looking through a glass dimly, that's all I know. And I know God's working it. Notice what he says in the beginning here in verse 27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said when we go through these things, there's a proof of our salvation. There, there, there's something God's doing. There's something good for us. That when we walk through these things and we come out the other side refined, it's a proof of salvation. We don't throw in the towel. We don't blame God. Tim Keller said Paul in this situation finds joy in his situation and understands he only sees a corner, a small corner of a very full picture. And in this fallen world, sometimes that's all we'll see. God gets no pleasure out of suffering. Now, he gets a lot of pleasure on how we go through suffering. Point number two is an incarnational thought. I only get a few, so this is worth listening to. The incarnational thought I had, and I've read everything on suffering you can read. In fact, God shut me down at one point. He said, that's enough. No more reading in that area. I read so much on suffering, I thought, okay, let's flip the argument. What if there was no suffering? What if there was no pain in life, no grief? You know what my conclusion is? No one would serve God. No one's serving God now and there's pain. Can you imagine if there was no suffering? C.S. Lewis said that pain was God's megaphone to a deaf world. In other words, when we look at our world, we know this isn't our Father's world. This can't be the world God created. And so pain has a way to bring us to Christ. When we lose the ones we love, when things don't turn out the way we plan, sometimes it drives us to our knees and we go on the search and many times it leads us to God. Many times it leads us to an understanding that 90% of you know, calamity on this planet comes from other human beings who God has given free will to. Now, let's, let's take it one step further. What if God never had Christians suffer? You know, I was sitting at dinner one night and I had to fly the next day somewhere and um, we were just talking about, you know, what if the plane went down or whatever, and one of my daughters said, well, that would never happen. God wouldn't let you die because you're the pastor of our church. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. It's not how it works. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. What if Christians never suffered? Well, then everybody would be a Christian. 
for all the wrong reasons. Isn't that what happened in John 6 when Jesus fed people? They wanted to make him king. And then he said, no, 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 no. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And they all left. See, they wanted a king that would give them bread and circuses. And that's what Rome gave them. That's what people are looking for. Let me tell you a few things about suffering you may have never thought about. Number one, do you realize everything inspirational in life is the triumph over tragedy and suffering? Just think about it for a minute. Some of you like movies. Some of you like to read. Think about some, some of the great literatures. Think of the greatest movies you've ever seen. It's all a triumph over tragedy. Les Miserables, one of the great musicals, right? One of the great books, movies. It's one of the greatest stories ever written, one of the greatest portrayals of grace. Jean Valjean, this man who's 20 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, becomes the mayor of Vigo, and he triumphs over the law and evil. It's a beautiful story, and we love it. Unbroken, Louis Zamperini, 40 days on a life raft. He survives only to be thrown into a concentration camp for five years, comes back, becomes an alcoholic, gets saved in a Billy Graham crusade. We're cheering. This is great. It's a triumph over tragedy. McFarland, USA, a down-and-out football coach. Kevin Costner goes to a predominantly Mexican-American school where he brings in a private school sport called cross-country uh, that they had never seen before, and they win like 11 state championships. By the way, if you're getting nothing out of my message, there's four great movie reviews. <laughs> and on the next night when you don't know what to rent, now you know what to rent. The Ten Commandments, Selma about Martin Luther King. I mean, the list goes on and on. The inspirational stories we see in sports everywhere is always how beauty has come from ashes. And we call that redemption, and that's God's story. Again, did God plan it that way? No, God said in the day that you sin, you'll surely die. Man brought that on himself. God is making beauty from ashes, and he does it every day. And we don't see it on a stage, and sometimes it takes years to see it in a movie, but he's doing it every single day. And I can tell you stories to the cows come home of what he's doing in everybody's life. And, and these are only stories I'm hearing. And so you could look at suffering many ways, and you're never going to see it the way the atheist says it. Because they just use a sleight of hand and say they're suffering, and then you believe it. But if you dig deeper, you say, wow, there's, there's something there's something deeper than what they're saying. I'll give you another deeper point. Uh, if you've ever read the book The Giver or seen the movie, it's a story about a society that's experienced war and devastation and pain. So they create a society where there is no pain or suffering. So when everybody in the house gets up in the morning, there's a device at the door. You, you inject yourself. It takes away emotion and such. Kids are delivered to you. Uh, no one argues. It's a perfect environment. No one gets sick. But there's one man called the giver, and the giver remembers the way it used to be with war, pain, and suffering, and they need that giver because they need one person to remember the way it used to be so it never happens again. Now, the problem is the giver has to pass it on to another giver, and in the movie, the plot really thickens when the new giver, who's 21 years old, sees the pain and suffering and comes to the realization, do you know what? Maybe it's better to have all the pain and all the suffering and not be programmed. And that's really the story of the gospel. God could have programmed us another way. God could have set up another system, but he gave us free will and he made us in his image. My final point is this. 
we have the benefit of generations that have gone before us. In other words, when I'm in a tight spot, when I'm facing great waters or mountains, I can look at Paul and say, well, if Paul could do it, I could do it. If God gave Paul the grace, he can give me the grace. You know, I read the Psalms, I look at David, and I think, if David could do it, I could do it. You know, David chased most of his life, dire circumstances. Uh, Psalm 11 comes, and he writes, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For look, the wicked bends their bow. They make their ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly of the upright in heart. David's saying, you know what? Those who serve God, these arrows come each and every day. And David said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. He's in the heavens. His eyes are watching over. David's counselors were saying, David, can't you see what's going on here? Just go to the mountains. Flee like a bird. Throw in the towel. And David's response is, are you kidding me? How can I run from God? David said, my refuge is in the Lord. That word refuge is used 150 times in the Old Testament, and it means to lean in, to lean upon. There's something you can trust. And in this world, you got to trust somebody, right? That was a song. I forget if it was the Beatles or Dylan or, you know, you got to trust someone, right? Some people trust the stock exchange. They trust politicians, you know, they, they trust their 401k, their paycheck. You know, everybody's a Christian until you get the two-week notice. Then God fell off the throne. Again, what's in your box? For me to live is what? The paycheck? Now, I know you need a paycheck, but it's not God. David said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Where's your trust this morning? Do you lean on God or do you lean on your own understanding? Do you press into him? One of the greatest accolades Jesus ever received was he was hanging on the cross and the one thief said to the other priest, uh, to the other thief, this man trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. It's the greatest thing we could ever hear. Wow, so-and-so trusts God. So-and-so believes in God. So-and-so is trusting God. Who even called to do? Paul could lean on God. And, and Paul didn't start leaning on God in this prison. This is what we need to understand. Paul wasn't in prison and said, oh my gosh, i got to lean on God. Everything's, the rug's been pulled out. You know when Paul began to know that God could be trusted? That he could lean on him? In Acts chapter 9, you know, he's a violent, he's an insolent man, he's killing Christians. Acts chapter 9, he sees this light on the Damascus road and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, well, go into a village and you'll see a man. He'll tell you what to do. And this man's name is Ananias. Ananias says to the Lord, you got the wrong man. This guy's killing Christians. And listen to what the Lord says. He said, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer. For my namesake. And you think, well, why did Paul have to suffer? Why did Paul have to suffer for his namesake? Here's why he suffered. Because Paul was a trailblazer. He was a firebrand. 
It was almost like God put a rocket on his back. He was a man of no compromise. For him to live was Christ, to die was gain. And when you live life that way, you prove to your enemies and all the people that you debate uh, where the truth lies. You, you prove to yourself your salvation. When you live in uncompromise and you make choices based on the scripture, you will suffer because you are going against the flow of the natural world. The natural world doesn't want to hear that the world was created in six days. They think you're a buffoon. They think we're idiots, that we believe there's male and female, that we believe marriage is for a man and a woman. Yeah, I can go down the list, right? We stand for something. We believe there's truth. And you live that way in a fallen world, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. Now, the people before us and still in the world today suffer with their lives like Paul did. You and I, it's kind of different here. We have this anomaly that our nation was actually built on these foundations and now they're crumbling. But Paul said, this is proof of my salvation. It's proof that God is working something in me. Hebrews chapter 11, Paul knew the great men of faith, the great women of faith. Said they were sawn in two, they were destitute, they wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, not worthy of this world. This world's looking for something else. One night my wife Monica came home and she handed me a book at 11 o'clock by Carol Kent called When I Lay My Isaac Down. She goes, whatever you do, you got to read this book. So I started, 11 o'clock at night, 3 o'clock in the morning, I was finished. Couldn't put it down. Carol Kent was a popular Christian author and speaker. Her husband had a successful business. Their one son had just graduated from the Naval Academy, had married a girl that was previously married, and now had two 10-year-old, 8- and 10-year-old grandchildren. They took a walk on a crisp, fall, idyllic Michigan day, and she looked at her husband and said, can life get any better than this. A few weeks later, they got a call that their son had committed murder. The old dad had come around. He was possessive of the new kids. He shot the guy twice in the back. They went through the trial. Her son was about to do life in prison. And she writes this in the beginning of her book. She said, there are some tragedies that are too big for a heart to hold. And they defy any description that makes sense. Time weaves its way through the shock, the hurt, and the inexpressible feelings. And one day you discover that in the process of daily survival, you have instinctively made decisions, good and bad, defined your theology, formed an opinion about God, and determined that you will either curl up and die emotionally or choose life. The terrifying but truthful fact that is in choosing life, you realize it will never match the kind of life that was your carefully thought out plan for your future. It will force you to view people around you differently. The brokenness will challenge you to new levels of personal compassion. It will melt your pride, diminish the importance of your carefully designed agenda, and it has the potential to develop an unshakable faith that defies rationality. It is my prayer that when I lay my Isaac down, will forever change your view of personal challenges. Part of this book will examine a man named Abraham. He had a son, I have a son. His son did nothing wrong, mine committed murder. This book is not about the sons, it's about the people who make heart sacrifices while living in the midst of uncircumcircumstances in a world where many things make no earthly sense. 
Abraham made choices that teach us how to live with purpose in an imperfect world. Other Bible characters do the same. Theologian Henry Blotcher in his book, The Evil and the Cross, said, at the cross, evil is conquered by the ultimate degree of love and what he calls the fulfillment of justice. Listen to that again. At the cross, everything before it, everything after it, evil is conquered by the ultimate degree of love in the fulfillment of justice. And that's why John, on the Isle of Patmos, 90 years old, the last living apostle, suffering in a penal colony, could write Revelation chapter 7, where there was no one worthy to open the seals, and Jesus opens them, the lamb who was slain, and he says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor scorching heat. Here's why. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of water. And here's the only thing you need to know about God. He will wipe away personally every tear. Every single tear. It doesn't say he's going to explain to you why it happens. It says he's going to wipe away every tear. I want to be on the front row when it happens because I hear the stories. Every week somebody has cancer. Every week somebody's dying. I want to be on the front row that day when every tear is wiped away. God suffered. He knows what you're going through. He's right beside you. And one day he's going to make all things new. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is firmly inscribed in the heavens and on earth, in our hearts and our minds. It is the anchor to our souls. And Lord, we do trust in you. You are our strong tower. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing.